Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robinson, and I discuss MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. We review the history of its use, research, mechanisms of action in the brain, possible therapeutic applications in the future, much, much more. Incidentally, I'm headed out to Colorado next week to be trained by MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, on how to do MDMA-assisted therapy. I'm really excited for this. MAPS is the organization, as you'll hear about in the episode, that's been doing MDMA-assisted therapy clinical trials for PTSD with astounding results. Thank you to all of you for listening to the show. We have some big changes coming to the show soon, so please stay tuned for what we think are going to be some exciting adjustments. Uh, if you're feeling generous, please rate the show, leave us reviews, subscribe to the YouTube channel, like the video, share episodes with your friends, all that good stuff. Or don't. We believe in personal agency and autonomy. We'll love you all the same. Please enjoy the episode on MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. We are back for another episode of the Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers podcast. Just me and Reed. How you doing, Reed? Just the two of us. I guess I, I shouldn't have said it like that. It's just me and Reed. I mean, we're not so bad. They're yeah, like I'm, us. I'm, I'm doing pretty well, Steve, though. Thanks for asking. Of course. I'm, I'm one year older since we last podcasted. That's uh, right. Not, you had a birthday. Yeah. Yep. It's always fun to take a moment and look at um, how time whizzes by. Any thoughts about uh, how you might make this year your best year yet? Uh, you know, I think it started when I was approaching 40. Um, I had this this big drive inside me to make it the best, like, I don't know, and f- to be in the best physical and mental fitness of my life um, mm-hmm. and to just be able to do more and more, be more and more nimble, agile. Um, and sure, there are things that come with age, right? Um, as you and I both know, you know, we might be a little more fragile or a little more stiff than we used to be. But, but I am inspired by, I don't know, what you what what we can do, what the human body can do with repeated practice and effort is pretty cool. And by taking yeah. care of it, yeah. Yeah, I feel like my my body doesn't um, maybe respond as quickly to training as it used to, but um, it's also not too late. And I think you know, there's there's certain wisdom you gain with age. Not that not that I'm super old and wise yet, but uh, uh, I'm excited. I'm I'm approaching forty. I'm thirty nine. I'll turn forty next year, and I'm 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 hopeful that my forties will be the best decade yet. Amen. No, it's it. The forties, the forties are good. I highly recommend it. Oh, good. So we're actually not talking about uh, Reed and Mind's midlife crisis today. Instead, we are talking about what the the secret chief Leo Zeff called penicillin for the soul, and that is oh. MDMA. MDMA. You know, there is a there is a little tie in to my birthday there or at least I can try to make one yeah. because it was in this very month, September 
in the year I was born, 1976, when Sasha Shulgin first took MDMA for the first time ever. He had synthesized it like in the 60s, mm -hmm. like reverse engineered it. Merck had invented it, patented it back in like 1912. But uh Shulgin was making this alphabet soup of psychedelics and trying many of them. But what I didn't really realize was that MDMA was one that he reverse engineered, put on the shelf for like a decade or more, but then took it one day in September, maybe on the day I was born, who knows? And he called it a, oh, a special effect. And so then he went to his buddy, Leo Zeff, like early 1977 said, Hey, Leo, you got to try this. It's special stuff. <laughs> and then that's when they started uh, introducing it to psychotherapy, psychotherapists, couples therapy, individual therapy. And uh, Shulgin published with David Nichols in 78, the first paper on human MDMA pharmacologic action. That's a, that is kind of a fun tie-in. That uh, so you said that Merck had made it back in like 1912. What what was their what were their hopes and dreams? Why was it synthesized in the first place? So they didn't have any hopes and dreams with it. They were making like hematology drugs, um, like blood thinning or drugs, something like that. And MDMA happened to be just a step along the way of synthesis to another agent. Like they called it, I think, something called methyl safrilamine. Um, mm. And they, they only patented it just because their patent covered a bunch of these steps. They didn't really even have an intent for it. The history books believed for a while that Merck was making it as an appetite suppressant, but that's been debunked. Like I think people thought that because MDA, um, which is another psychedelic type compound in the alphabet soup, MDA was being studied or explored as a potential appetite suppressant, but, but MDMA was not, even though that might be part of its subjective effect is as a stimulant reducing appetite somewhat. Yeah. So we're calling it a psychedelic and um, maybe we should talk a little bit about what MDMA is and why, why a lot, a lot of people put it under that broad umbrella of psychedelics, even though it, it doesn't have some of the same subjective effects that what the so-called traditional psychedelics have, right? Yeah. Yeah. Before, before we go down a mechanism rabbit hole, you want to hear another Shulgin fun fact from yeah. the Shulgin dynamic duo. So there's Sasha and Anne. And Anne mm -hmm. just passed away within the last several months, right? At, mm -hmm. I think she was 91. Um, but they were... I don't know, these psychedelic pioneers, uh, psychonaut couple extraordinaire uh, who tripped thousands of times. So what what would happen is Sasha Shulgin was a brilliant chemist and he would synthesize or dream up these things. And I think it was Anne who would take a little tiny bit of it and report back. Um, and they were this like dream team and she had the psychological and spiritual viewpoints and sasha had the scientific perspective um and and uh you can see these trip reports and um in their recipe book like the pcal tcal book series um 
by Shulgin. Mm-hmm. Oh, but the fun fact was this. Uh, he was pretty friendly with the DEA. Like he had a Schedule One license to do this stuff um, for a long while. And in like, I think it was around 1980, his friend at the DEA officiated their wedding of him. No and way. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, true pioneers. Um, and I, I've heard that those books you mentioned, the PCAL and TCAL, they can be sometimes hard to find. Are they not in print anymore? Uh, I don't think they're in print. I have a copy on my shelf over here, but I love the title, like PCAL, A Chemical Love Story. It's mm-hmm. like from 1991. Um, it stands for phenylethamines I have known and loved, and then the other one's about tryptamines. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, another thing Anne said was that inventing new psychedelics was like composing new music. I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. But then, so then in the 90s, uh, um, when they, after they published those books, a couple of years later, the, the feds um, raided his lab, fined him $25,000, which was a lot back then, and took away a Schedule One license. Mm. And that was just because of the sort of the propagation of MDMA into, onto the street, like into illicit use. It's, I mean, it goes yeah. by their street names, right? Like ecstasy and and molly yeah yeah it's because uh it became wildly popular in the 80s um as a recreational club drug and uh like beyond the therapy circles Mm -hmm. and this was on the heels of the big crackdown on psychedelics in general um for like political reasons right yeah. And, and, you know, I, when we talked to the therapists who were working with that medicine all those years ago, they, it was really tragic to them because it, they felt like psychedelics generally, but, um, MDMA in particular made them super therapists, like super couples therapists in particular, um, just because of the effects that we'll talk about here in a minute. But yeah, it's so, so yeah. exciting. that it's, it looks like it might be coming back. Yeah, it's it's coming back, and there has even been, uh, aside from the phase three PTSD research that we talk about a lot and that people hear about a lot in the news, there has been a couples MDMA study done um, in the modern day in the last uh, few years in you know by a colleague up in Toronto, Ann Wagner, mm-hmm. where one one of the couple had PTSD, but the other member of the the intimate partnership did not and but was given the drug as well to support and heal yeah well should we talk mechanisms what is this uh what is this stimulant that seems to make people love each other (laughs) yeah what do they what do they call it a ring substituted amphetamine like it's you know it's interesting to think about that but it is like an amphetamine derivative in a way that I, I'm still baffled by the fact that um, Merck and the whole story through Shulgin and and so many others and beyond stumbled on this um, penicillin for the soul, this medicine that dramatically increases feelings of closeness and empathy. Um, and I don't, no other drug works this way that I know of like that, especially that dramatically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it has these, you know, it acts on so many different types of neurotransmitters or receptor sites, right? It's like a, 
a triple reuptake inhibitor with, um, I don't know, serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, and then there's some action in there on oxytocin. Like it gives kind of this perfect neurological storm for self-love and love for others. Yeah. And so to tease that apart a little bit, MDMA works a little differently than the classic psychedelics on serotonin. It does, it's an indirect agonist because it, it hits a, a receptor called the serotonin transporter CERT, S-E-R-T. And it also um, stimulates dopamine and norepinephrine receptors. And as you mentioned, um, stimulates the release of oxytocin. Um, and uh, that's in large in in large part or in um responsible for the pro-social effects and that that uh feeling of safety and empathy but it's really from from that uh kind of synchronistic combination of those neurotransmitters in this like medicine that was synthesized over 100 years ago mm-hmm yeah, I remember hearing Rick Doblin, uh, the founder of MAPS, talk about uh, why it seems to be such a good PTSD therapy drug, right? He talked about how mm-hmm. it, it sort of downregulates limbic system activity or the amygdala yeah. so that people are less stuck in fight or flight. They can access memories through a greater connection between the prefrontal cortex and the, and the, the hippocampus, I think it was. And so it's, I mean, if you had to design something that would help with PTSD therapy, it would be something that does that in the mind, right? Or in the brain in this case. Yeah. And that's, uh, what we call an empathogen, right? Mm. Uh, and with these pro-social behaviors too, this openness, the self-compassion, this fear reduction, this increase in trust, interpersonal trust, self-trust, and that allows a client in the context of therapy to go deep and access painful, um, deep-seated emotions that might have been previously inaccessible because they were just too difficult, too overwhelming, too walled off. Yeah, it, you know, you call it an empathogen. I've also heard it called an intactogen, like um, yeah. where you're you're having empathy and you're getting in, in touch with what's deep, deep inside that maybe you have deliberately avoided or subconsciously repressed. Um, and it allows you to be in the presence of this very difficult material with all that kind of self-love we've been talking about, which again, um, why it's so perfect for PTSD. Cause a lot of what causes PTSD symptoms to perpetuate is our unwillingness to be in the presence of the emotions that the memories of our trauma bring up. Right. Or we have all those different, um, coping mechanisms or parts, however you want to describe it, that have been created to protect us from that content. Uh, so everything sort of chills out and relaxes during MDMA assisted therapy. And the result is this really cool phenomenon, um, that I've heard described in uh, a paper, post-traumatic growth instead of post-traumatic stress, meaning like then you can start to get post-traumatic post-trauma changes in a positive direction. Um, in self-perception, interpersonal relationships, in how you view life, self, others, um, almost like changing the course, altering the course of or the trajectory of what we previously saw PTSD doing to people. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Therapists love to talk about how, and we do it all the time in this podcast too, but how uh, struggle is an opportunity for growth. Um, and that, you know, we like to say that, that the emotional triggers we experience are opportunities for growth and development or friends to follow. Uh, sometimes that's really, really hard to convince people of because most of us are walking around not really enjoying our most difficult emotions, right? <laughs> we don't really love being uh -huh. triggered. Um, so while we, you know, these concepts are true, the only way out is through and, and all the slogans, um, to have a medicine like MDMA that makes that process not only easier, but more complete, right? It's a lot of times what prevents people from growing in response to trauma is the incompleteness of the processing. It gets stuck somewhere along the way. So having something like MDMA that allows you to move all the way through the entire arc of the experience and come out on the other end with the message, with the lesson, um, is incredible. And the fact that it can do it relatively quickly. I mean, in, in the MAPS trials for PTSD, we've got, I don't remember exactly how many sessions it is, but it's like, you know, three medicine sessions punctuated and surrounded by several regular psychotherapy sessions, like three prep sessions, some integration sessions, and then a follow-up. Um, and they, there are people, we can talk about the stats, but people who have had PTSD for a long time, serious PTSD, treat, you could even call it treatment resistant PTSD that has essentially gone away, right? People, what was it? Something like close to 90%, like 88% of the participants with severe PTSD, PTSD no longer met diagnostic criteria at the completion of the study. It was uh 67% who didn't meet criteria, but this is of a population of severe PTSD, an average, I think, of 10 years, but there was an 88% metric, and that was around um, those with clinically meaningful uh, improvement in their PTSD. Yeah. 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 It's striking. It is. It's, uh, it's I don't know, mind-blowing how much that separates from treatment as usual. Mm -hmm. um, even in the placebo group, when there is still... 40 hours of therapy, instead of that 67% uh, um, no longer having a PTSD diagnosis, it was 32%. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it still seems high, but, but, uh, but that's getting a lot of therapy, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that 88% uh, was more like, well, you know, 60% or so with uh, therapy alone. So it's not like a magic pill, and this is all in the context of therapy, and there's a lot of work involved, but it is uh, striking what MDMA can do for so many people to uh, to open up that window of healing, that opportunity to do it when you just couldn't before. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you underscored that point that this is MDMA assisted therapy. It's not, if it was just the medicine, then people would be coming out of the club, coming out of raves, mm -hmm. spontaneously healed from their PTSD. And I imagine, I don't know, maybe that happens sometimes, but uh, yeah, it's, it's MDMA in context with intent and therapeutic guidance and uh, mm -hmm. support. And it's also not ecstasy like meaning the street drug ecstasy. Ecstasy is a pressed pill of MDMA. People at least think they're getting MDMA in it, plus a bunch of other junk like mm -hmm. stimulants might have uh, 
It might have some amphetamines in it or some um, cocaine or bath salts or whatever it is. Um, and it also has a high dose of, of uh, MDMA. Usually it could be upwards of two, three, four hundred milligrams, way above what these studies use. Yeah, there's um, because MDMA is is still a Schedule One substance. It's illegal that people who obtain it from you know basement chemists or whatever their favorite drug dealer run the risk of getting contaminated stuff. Um, and I think you know there were some stats out there where there was a sample of MDMA or ecstasy or tablets that had been seized and that were tested, and some of them contained somewhere between zero percent MDMA. Uh, and you know, 50% MDMA or something like that. So, you know, we don't encourage any illicit activity or the use of any illegal drugs. Uh, the clinical trials we're talking about are FDA, FDA approved clinical trials where they use, you know, pure, uh, MDMA. Um, but you're, you really have to be, be very careful when you're getting a substance that we've, we've talked about before in the, in the interest of harm reduction about, uh, the wisdom in testing substances that you can't trust the source on, but. Yeah, what's that uh, that kit? Um, Dance Safe makes one. Mm -hmm. I think a nonprofit that um, there are a number of different test kits, but yeah, that are bunk, easily bunk, found. Bunk Police is another one. Um, those yeah. are the two that I've heard of the most. But and uh, a note on dose, I think, is worthwhile here while we're on the topic because um, in you know, in the spirit of just openly sharing science and the spirit of harm reduction, um, in contrast to those high doses we were talking about in those ecstasy press tablets, um, people in MDMA studies of PTSD, for example, get somewhere between 80 to 120 milligrams as an initial dose and say another you know, 60 to 80-ish as a booster, optional booster, 90 minutes in, um, topping out on uh, around 180 milligrams total um, given in those two separate doses. Um, and the science says that above 200 milligrams, you just start getting more side effects without the benefits. And there are side effects that come from MDMA, especially dose-related ones. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the desirable effects are the ones we've been talking about, euphoria, openness, self-forgiveness. Uh, there's, you know, increased energy, desire to connect, all the things you might wish for in a, in a therapy environment or in an environment where somebody wants to, wants to cuddle. But there's also the dark side of uh, what, what, you know, we call side effects, but they're just the undesirable effects, right? There's panic, anxiety, blood pressure increase, heart rate increase, uh, hyperthermia. There's a risk of hyperhydration because of the hyperthermia. People dancing around sweating a lot uh, and then drinking a lot, dry mouth, jaw clenching. Uh, it can be pretty unpleasant. Yeah. Yeah. So to, to go over those categorically, uh, because MDMA has been studied in over... 2,000 participants over the last, uh, say, 20 years. I think it was in the early 2000s that Michael Mitoff or Michael and Annie did the first modern uh, MDMA experiments. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's cardiac, meaning it increases your heart rate, blood pressure temporarily. 
Um, most don't experience it um, any more than they would with moderate exercise, right? Um, there's some concerns of neurotoxicity that are from high doses, meaning like if you were to take about four times a steady dose, your brain's going to stop making as much serotonin for at least a couple weeks. Um, and, uh, you know, and there, there, there was that study, I think it's important to point out, there was a study that sounded some alarm bells a number of years ago about potential neurotoxicity with MDMA, but that was retracted because the study was actually, like they had kind of messed up their methods and were studying an amphetamine instead, mm. um, like meth. And, and so, but, but it is true that um, there is a toxic threshold, unlike something like um, psilocybin, even LSD, there is a neurotoxicity potential if you're getting at a certain really high dose. Um, and there's also a risk of, of serotonin syndrome um, at really high doses. Um, we're talking about like, I don't know, five times or more uh, a study dose. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah there haven't ever been uh have there been mdma related deaths because of those super high doses yeah. and uh dehydration related etc because like you said decreased appetite insomnia dizziness jaw tightness um difficulty concentrating you might be your gait could even change your muscles could be tense um thirsty and then MDMA through a different mechanism regulates water in, in your system by activating what's called the, like this arginine vasopressin system. Um, so there's, there's a alteration in water regulation and uh, like a metabolic, um, like dehydration that comes along with it. And if you're not paying attention, that can be, that can be dangerous. Mm. Yeah. Um, there were some, uh, there was even one study done maybe 15 years ago that uh, looked back and surveyed heavy recreational users and found heart abnormalities in recreational like ecstasy, ecstasy tablet users. Um, and those who had heart problems, they had an average of a thousand doses in their lifetime. Wow. That's a yeah. lot. And as you said, it's, it's not, pure MDMA that we would be using in an MDMA therapy session. It's ecstasy possibly cut with other things. Yeah. And it is, it, I've seen some estimates, not recently, but like within the last decade, there've been some estimates of people like in the, in North America using ecstasy and it's upwards of a million, pe million people in mm. a given year. Yeah. Wow. It's probably more now. Wow. Um, what about interactions, um, drug interactions? It's, it's not uncommon for people to combine MDMA with other psychedelics. There's fun terms that, that are, that are used to uh -huh. describe these combinations, right? Combining it with psilocybin affectionately referred to as the hippie flip or with, uh, LSD, the candy flip or ketamine, the, the kitty flip. Um, and the idea being that MDMA, the, and the, the, the other psychedelic have a synergistic effect that they uh, enhance the effects of one another. And there's questions about timing the drugs because they have different trajectories of experience, right? MDMA is going to have a shorter, shorter run through your nervous system, your body than certainly than LSD would, for example. Yeah. And there are, 
there are people in the underground who will do those combos too. It's not just recreationally. You see some of that combined and you can see the rationale of uh, MDMA creating a safe container for another medicine to come in and say dissolve ego structures that can be scary. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, when I, when I talk about the why I need to quickly add on a disclaimer that this has not been studied. Like first up is studying these things individually, right. um, which is being done and is very promising, but, but we could talk about the, like the, the pharmacology of this and what it interacts with. Like there's some studies, there are some studies being done, um, in, uh, with MDMA and SSRIs, for example, and what happens. In fact, uh, when I was in my MAPS training um, within the last year or two, um, it was led by Michael and Annie Mitoffer, and, and Michael had just gotten accepted for publication this paper on MDMA and SSRIs. So he sent me a copy of that just as it was getting prepared for press. And um, it does talk about how, you know, it's not universal and these weren't all big st sample sizes, but, you know, when you have an SSRI on board, um, that can interfere with the effect of MDMA. It makes sense because you're giving a serotonin kind of reuptake inhibitor and uh, MDMA, it could kind of put a little wrench in the cascade of the serotonin effects a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Other, other drugs. I know that, um, alcohol doesn't necessarily play well with a lot of psychedelics. People talk about, yeah. you know, not drinking alcohol cause it's metabolized in the liver, just like MDMA is, and it could cause a buildup and same with, uh, caffeine too. Just like it's a concern of combining too many stimulants together. Um, mm. because it's one, you know, MDMA is already stimulating. Um, but, uh, the SSRIs might be more blunting, um, but there are like the older antidepressants, um, the MAOIs, especially the, not many people are on these days, but those become a, a serious risk of serotonin syndrome, um, because they are, you know, blocking the reuptake. And so there's certainly a risk of, uh, of serotonin that I think is, a uh, is a real one at uh, significant doses of MDMA with some of those old ones. So it's worth being extremely cautious with your antidepressants, especially if, if you're not familiar with, um, intimately familiar with the categories of, mm -hmm. of these antidepressants that we're talking about. Um, and then similarly, like if, you, if you're on something like Wellbutrin, uh, which is in a class of its own, like a dopamine and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, um, you could have an increased risk of seizures just because Wellbutrin lowers your seizure threshold. Not that MDMA routinely causes that, but um, there's a black box warning of Wellbutrin in eating disorders because of a seizure risk even. Hmm. What about uh, what about cannabis? A lot of people use cannabis recreationally and um, hmm. medicinally nowadays. Yeah. You know, I, while I could see the rationale of of like, I would like to study one day a combination of MDMA and classic psychedelics, right? Mm -hmm. Like I could see the therapeutic rationale, even though I know we have a lot of work to do on the research front on the path to that. And I can also see the sequencing of those in, in the right way. 
Um, but cannabis and MDMA, um, I don't see any dangerous interactions other than like maybe uh, diminishing your sharp acuity towards these potential risks. Uh, but I do see the potential of cannabis just being um, numbing a little bit to the experience, not mm -hmm. universally necessarily, but what do you think? Yeah. I've, I mean, I've heard um, for some people they might use it if they become a little too agitated. It's a, almost use it as a way to, to uh, deal with some of the undesirable effects. It smooths it out a bit if they've taken too much or if they're sensitive to it. Um, but yeah, then of course, if, if you're really enjoying yourself and you decide to smoke weed, it could, uh, could blunt the, the positive experience for you too. Yeah. And it might be worth in the uh, spirit of harm reduction too, talking about um, these resources like Roll Safe, Dance Safe, um, and the science um, that they draw from to come up with lists of recommended supplements for people who are engaging in these medicines. Um, yeah, because, and just to cut you off, and I was going to say not to cut you off, but I deliberately cut you <laughs> off. Um, Do it. It's, uh, people sometimes talk about this come down, right? The, the MDMA come down or this, the, I've, I've heard it uh, tragically referred to as suicide Tuesday that people will, uh, you know, party over the weekend with these substances. And then by the time Tuesday rolls around, they're so depleted, uh, that they're in a rough spot psychologically and some ideas about why that might be. Um, what I've heard recently though, is that for most of the people going through the maps trials, they don't have these, uh, these really nasty come down effects like people in the, the people who use the, the substance illicitly tend to. Yeah. It's a dose related phenomenon. Like the pro the maps protocol does not include the supplementation by default. Um, you know, some supplements, if you're doing a clinical trial might be, uh, not allowed on a study like ginkgo biloba or things that might have, um, even grapefruit juice can interact with some medicines because of its cytochrome P450 action in the liver and all that. But, but with the MAPS study, there aren't um, – some of these may be allowed for participants and some participants may take some of these. But, but uh, those resources like RollSafe, DanceSafe are giving a list of neuroprotective vitamins um, like ginger – Acetyl L carnitine, vitamin C, magnesium, um, neuroprotective, neurosupporting, coenzyme Q10, um, and acetylcysteine, like a very powerful antioxidant, ECGC from like green tea extract. Um, and then there's often like a melatonin recommendation afterwards. Um, it's basically taking care of mopping up free radicals and oxidative stress that MDMA is known to or theorized to do um, as doses increase. Yeah. And I guess one point I was trying to make is that, uh, yes, it might be dose dependent, but um, it's also a set and setting thing, probably purity of the medicine, but yeah. also a set and setting thing. With a, a lot of people who are using the substance recreationally or illicitly are um, up all night. They're, they, they might be not taking as, as good a care of themselves physically. So some of these commonly reported come down symptoms from MDMA use could be the result of these other things too, of just not sleeping, uh, dancing all night, not hydrating properly and becoming dehydrated and sleep deprived. Yeah. And, um, 
that jaw tightness as another example that you mentioned, um, you know, is dose related with MDMA and everyone has a different threshold for getting it and it's not seen by most participants in an MDMA study, but it can show up and, and there are things you get like tips, cues you get in your MAPS training supervision of like, yeah, you might give someone a wet uh, rag to chew on, something like mm -hmm. that, if they had jaw tightness uh, um, or some chewing gum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, speaking of MAPS, I'm going to be heading out to Colorado here in a few weeks to oh, go yeah. through MAPS' official MAPS MDMA training. I'm excited. I'm gonna, it's going to be under uh, Bruce Poulter and um, Marcella Odolora. Oh, that, that, they're amazing. Yeah, I know we talk about um, Marcella a lot on here because um, – of her Hakomi skills on top of it. And Bruce, her significant other, uh, is, is an amazing, uh, individual as well. And just so gifted at this work. They both are like, I, yeah, I would want to see them if I were going through a course of MDMA assisted psychotherapy or Michael and Annie, of course, they're, they're incredible, the most gentle, loving humans. Yeah. These great, uh, MDMA therapy power couples. I'm really, I'm really excited to learn. Um, and just a cool excuse to go to Colorado. So I'll, I'll return a report when I get a chance here on the podcast. Cause I know nice. a lot of the people, a lot of the people who listen uh, to our podcasts are aspiring, uh, psychedelic assisted therapists or they're people in the industry or people just really curious and maybe hopeful patients too. So maps is, is, is the organization that's pushing MDMA assisted therapy forward. And, um, for most of you who are looking to become MDMA assisted therapists in the future, you'll eventually have some kind of training through maps, whether it's through them directly or through, uh, you know, a, a training product that's been sponsored or supported by them. Yeah. When we were out at the horizons conference last December in New York and maps gave their kind of state of the union update and predictions for the future, their moonshot goals, they said that they would like to train 30,000 therapists by 2030 and treat 1 million individuals with PTSD, yeah. which I thought was pretty cool. Ambitious, and I'm, I'm all for it. You know, to, uh, to conceptualize the experience, the MDMA experience, um, might be helpful to rattle off this list from a paper that I've pulled from uh, Sumnal. It's, it's an older one, but it gives six principal components of the ecstasy experience is what mm. he called it back then. Um, if you'd like, I can, uh, I can just list them off for you. Yeah. Rattle them off. So number one, perceptual alterations, like meaning everything I look at seems to vibrate or pulse when I'm on MDMA. Uh, number two, intactogenesis, like you said, touching within oneself on MDMA. I can deliberately generate insights concerning myself, my personality, my relationship with others. Um, number three, pro-social, uh, uh, having strong feelings or caring compassion, moving towards other people. Um, number four, aesthetic and mood effects. So on MDMA, it's pleasurable to be in one's body and move and dance and feel and touch. Yeah. And number five, negative intoxication effects. When I'm on MDMA, I find that I have problems remembering things is kind of what that means. Um, the cognitive ch changes, um, distractibility, for example, um, with all its benefits, like there, there are some things like, you know, the 
cardiac stuff we were talking about that uh, happen that may be less desirable. Um, and number six, um, sexual effects, just meaning that is different um, on uh, like like the uh, the way one views self and others and experiences one's sexuality, I guess. So that those are the six things from a 2011 paper or 26, mm. 2006 paper. I guess one detail to add about sexual effects that some people, because it's a stimulant, um, stimulant there, there might be an increased um, sort of drive towards sexual contact, but there's uh, sometimes also an interference with one's ability to quote unquote perform sexually. I hate the word perform when it relates to sexuality, but it's the word that came to my mind. So it can cause some erectile dysfunction or it can cause difficulty uh, achieving orgasm. So things to keep in mind. Yeah. Um, and here, here's one more list for you. Um, Anne Shulgin's four agreements that she would make when beginning an MDMA session for the participants. Mm. Um, they had to consent to these in order to do a session. It was no one was no expression of hostility or aggressive action Two, no sexual activity. Um, three, no, allowing the consciousness to abandon the body in such a manner that would cause physical death and for no exiting until after the end of the session. <laughs> I like those very practical. I love the one like no dying, <laughs> not allowed to die. Not allowed. I mean, I, I, I uh, agree with that one for sure. Yeah. Oh, All of them. Seems very rational. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, she said that one of the problems that most human beings suffer from a suspicion that the core essence of who they are deep down is a monster. There's a terrible fear when you get down to it. MDMA removes that fear. And Shulgin. Hmm. I was talking to someone the other day about sort of the, the root or maybe a root to much of the suffering in the world being violence toward yourself. You know, it's belief yeah. that you are bad in some way, or you are not enough that you are a monster and, and people deal with that self-hatred differently. Some some people with really turn it on themselves and there's a lot of self-destruction and other people will project it outward and become terrible to others when what they're really trying to destroy is the, the parts of themselves they see in others. So to the extent that MDMA can help us helpers help others <laughs> help themselves, <laughs> um, then it will be a, a useful tool. Yeah. Yeah, self-compassion in general, like beyond MDMA, day-to-day self-compassion mm -hmm. that you compare with with those other those things that would otherwise keep you stuck. Like you you have um, feelings of regret, um, guilt. Bring on self-compassion, and you you can turn it into growth. If you have that regret, remorse paired with like shame that's when you're stuck or worse, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's one of the reasons I really like the IFS approach and you've introduced me more to, to Hakomi, which I'm excited to study. Um, it's one of the reasons I like them is they, they really provide a good framework for self-compassion or a good way to conceptualize the things you struggle with in a framework of self-compassion. You know, it's, it's there, you might have a recurring belief that, that you're really frustrated by, or a pattern of behavior that's really self-defeating. And instead of just beating yourself up about it, you can see it as a part of you and maybe even a part of you that's trying to 
save you from something or protect you from something or spare you from something. And it's fighting a war that maybe is, is really over because it thinks you're younger than you are or less capable than you are. Mm-hmm. It's just a very gentle way to approach self-improvement. Yeah. And uh, slightly related to that and to tie it into our birthday um, discussion around our midlife crises. Um, mm-hmm. You remember also when we were at that Horizons conference, Gould Dolan um, mm. was giving a talk on psychedelics and what she called metaplasticity, like mm-hmm. um, opening up a critical social learning period. And I was just fascinated um, how she contrasted it with this oxytocin-mediated synaptic plasticity that MDMA opens up compared to something like cocaine that you could call causing hyperplasticity. So mm-hmm. um, meaning the opposite, <laughs> like not only not going to um, learn new tricks, but you're going to cramp, clamp it all down and um, make it stuck on the, uh, you know, whatever it is, that maladaptive stuff instead. But with MDMA and with other psychedelics, you open up this window where you can learn more. You can, you can relearn and replace old patterns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder, you know, I, I'm not the, uh, the neurochemical doctor, but like, I wonder the role that oxytocin could play in other psychedelics that don't, maybe don't necessarily, um, activate the release of oxytocin the same way the MDMA does. Like if there was a way to add oxytocin to the mix, if you're going through a challenging Mm -hmm. LSD experience, is is there an oxytocin nasal spray or, I don't know, suppository or (laughs) some way to to get it in your body uh, that would help soften things up? You know, it's interesting there. You can prescribe compounded oxytocin nasal spray, like Mm -hmm. most compounding pharmacies will do it. I've seen people even add that into their ketamine nasal spray prescriptions. I, I haven't uh, um, prescribed it that way myself, but I would like to see more studies done about oxytocin. I do follow the oxytocin literature and there there is some, um, it's mixed. Like it's, it's hard to get an effect out of a nasal spray oxytocin compared to something like MDMA, but mm-hmm. there are positive studies that show something. So I think you're you're on to something with the idea. Um, but uh, in the way MDMA does it, you are, it's as, it's as if you're rewinding your ability to learn to that earlier time in life um, when we aren't so old and stuck mm-hmm. in our ways. Like, you know, you can always learn, but it's like harder to learn a language as you get older. As the brain matures, um, that learning of a language as an example, peaks around adolescence, declines over time. But the same thing with our social um, reward learning pathways around trust and self-compassion and everything else. Yeah. I love Gould Dolan's stuff around these uh, critical periods. It just makes so much sense. Like you, you'll hear a lot of different phrases used when describing why we think psychedelics are helpful. Neuroplasticity, um, neurogenesis, synaptogenesis, uh, this, the, the, you'll hear the, um, you know, the snow globe metaphor, the metaphor of the ski slope, this fresh coat of power, powder that allows new, mm-hmm. new tracks to be, to be run. Um, but I like the idea of a critical period because if you study any developmental psychology, there is this concept or this notion of stages of development, um, that occur best 
within certain critical periods that they're called critical because if the development doesn't happen in those periods, it's harder for that kind of learning or development to, to happen. There's, there's sort of a, it's, it's time limited. So if psychedelics can reopen those windows, that's potential for growth. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's an amazing time. And you know what else this is doing? The psychedelic research renaissance is giving us a new view of the human brain and behavior because mm. like we can see things happen in real time, like from the time zero when you take a medicine to six hours later when you've gone through this journey without all the confounding variables of day-to-day -day life, like being out there in the world and getting triggered um, in all the ways that you do. I mean, sure, you get triggered in the therapy room, but it's, it's a controlled setting to do that deep work and to understand more about the deep work we want to help people more and more with. Right, right. Read any other tidbits about MDMA that you think our listeners would be fascinated to hear? You know, I, I would just, I think, and by uh, just recap that, you know, at its heart, um, the healing relationship is between two people, whether mm. you're talking about healing in the context of working with your own partner um, and healing past relationship wounds or working with a therapist in a therapy room. Um, and when you go into a therapy room with a stranger uh, or you're in a troubled relationship, um, when you don't have that open, trusting bond, um, you're missing one of the ingredients for doing the work, that safety and trust. And, and so that's what uh, I think MDMA comes in and does is forge helps forge that very bond um, in, in a real way, like helps you do it if you want to do it. And so you can go in there and heal and grow. Well said, well said. And, you know, as usual, everybody, we, uh, we're not doing an exhaustive coverage of a psychedelic medicine, but, um, just, we assume that if you're listening to psychedelic therapy frontiers, you're interested in psychedelic therapy and MDMA is one of the most promising psychedelics that, uh, I think is coming down the pipeline or I guess back into the pipeline, <laughs> um, taken out for treatment of really, really tough conditions. So I'm glad we're Thanks, Steve. It. Yeah. It's fun chatting with you. All right. Take care. Thank you, dear listener for listening. It means a lot to me. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks again. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So... If you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.